there's a strong strand of literature which really disparages this whole process and in a way um, wants to return to the kind of simplicity of Patton or Montgomery's headquarters. My, my point overwhelmingly would be um, that the headquarters are enlarged because decision-making has proliferated. Complicated operations require complex systems of command. And so I think that we're stuck with collective command, whether we like it or not. And that I see, uh, if anything, an accentuation of this professionalized system distribution um, over the next uh, 10, 20 years. Hey, welcome back to the Modern War Institute podcast. I'm John Amble, editorial director at MWI, and this episode features a conversation about a concept that really is fundamental to the military and its operations, command. In fact, my guest for the conversation literally wrote the book on the subject. Dr. Anthony King is chair of war studies in the politics and international studies department at Britain's Warwick University and the author of Command, the 21st Century General. During the discussion, he describes how the way that general officers command their forces might change as warfare's character evolves. He also explains how exercising command has changed from an individual endeavor to something he calls collective command. He even touches on history, asking, for example, how Patton or Montgomery would have fared in the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Before we get to the conversation, a couple quick notes. First, be sure you're subscribed to the MWI podcast. You can find it pretty much anywhere you get your podcast. And second, as always, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the U.S. government. All right, here's my conversation with Dr. Anthony King. Dr. Anthony King, thanks so much for joining us for this episode of the Modern War Institute podcast. Oh, thank you for, for having me. It's a pleasure. So we're going to talk about your uh, your most recent book. It's called Command. The subtitle is The 21st Century General. And I guess that would be my first question is, um, is this sort of a, you know, can we bifurcate this? Is this century have a different type of senior military leadership necessary to it? Well, what I'd say here, there's, there's, there's a lot of continuity in terms of command, and I had to be very careful, and it troubled me immensely as I was writing the book in terms of ensuring that I wasn't making hyperbolic, typically hyperbolic sociological statements about transformation when, in fact, everything had been seen before. So uh, the issue of, of to the extent to the change and whether there was a change was central to the project. Um, what I'd say is this, is in terms of command as a function, as a concept, there is no change. Command is decision making. I would argue that it has three aspects, mission definition, the management of the tasks of which any mission is comprised, and finally, the leadership motivation role. And both in terms of decision making, those three functions, that that is a, a, a trans-historical uh, feature of command. And so in terms of the nature of command, I think it's utterly continuous throughout historical eras. But of course, what my argument would then be is that the character of command, the nature of decision making, especially in terms of management uh, and leadership, but also, in fact, in terms of mission definition, the practices which are involved in those functions does actually change. And the central thesis of this book is that 
notwithstanding very serious and important continuities from the 20th century, and of course the book deals really with a comparison of 20th century divisional command to 21st century divisional command, notwithstanding those continuities, um, what I try to propose, what I try to evidence an argument, is that uh, we see a shift in the practice of command from what I would call an individualist system of command to a collective system of command. And that is related not to the personalities, the psychologies of individual commanders, but to the operational and organisational uh, situation in which commanders find themselves. And so command is an adaptation, a reflection of the of the wider institutional situation in which military generals find themselves. Well, I want to ask you some specific questions about that because I find that, that um, I guess, conclusion sort of fascinating. But first, I, I wonder if we can take a step back. What led you to write this book about command? And also, as sort of a sub-question to that, um, I wonder if you can differentiate, I mean, you, you deliberately chose command as opposed to leadership. Um, I wonder if you can yeah. kind of distinguish between those two things uh, in, in, in your sort of answer of why you wrote this book. Yeah, well, I mean, it's maybe best to provide a small narrative about uh, how the book came to be. Um, the book eventually, I hope, turned, in, turned into the third part of a trilogy on, on 21st century military transformation. But if I was honest, that's not quite how it started. Um, I, uh, you know, finished a book on infantry tactics and was looking around for other topics. Um, and initially, um, the issue of the division and the restoration of the army division uh, was of paramount concern, particularly to the U.S. Army, followed by uh, the British and French armies. And I originally was interested in the division as an institution. Uh, but eventually, of course, uh, when one is looking at the reconstitution of the division and particularly divisional headquarters, what obviously emerged eventually uh, was that this is about about command. Um, now, the question then is, as you absolutely put it, what do we mean by command? I mean, in all the literature and military doctrine, um, there is always a close associating with with command and leadership and indeed very unhelpfully the two words are sometimes used interchangeably sure. um, and i understand that but for me there is a clear distinction uh, for me command refers to decision making authority the authority invested in an individual and in an individual uh, commander an individual officer uh, uh, to execute decisions, to make and execute decisions in the prosecution of military operations. Uh, so it's a it's a conceptual it's a conceptual uh, function. It's a conceptual uh, practice with an authority attached. Um, so command, if command is decision making, um, leadership is intimately closely related to that function, and indeed. I would say it is incorporated by that that fun, that function. But for me, on the basis of reading various bits of literature and also my experience of watching um, generals and officers at work, uh, was that leadership could usefully be applied to a more specific activity, namely motivation. The motivating motivating of troops and indeed staff officers and subordinates to actually execute the mission. And so you can see the very close connection. Um, command refers to the definition of the mission, leadership ensuring that uh, troops, officers, subordinates are motivated to actually fulfill the duties required 
of the mission that the commander has been defined. And, and indeed, in practice, they are intimately related because, of course, um, by making a good decision about the mission, that is motivating, but also in providing individual leadership and belief in the mission, that enables the mission to be completed. So uh, the, the, issues, uh, the issues of command and leadership and indeed third element, management, are in, in, inter, interrelated, interwoven. Uh, but for me, the, the com- command is the dominant principle that incorporates leadership uh, within it. Without that uh, ability to um, to define a mission, there is no possibility of motivating troops to do it. And of course, um, uh, the very uh, uh, the very ability to define a mission generates generates this sense of motivation. So you, you mentioned that this was uh, sort of a natural progression from um, previous work that you had done. Uh, I think you mentioned specifically your book, uh, The Combat Soldier, uh, which is a sort of small unit tactical level focus. Yeah. Um, was Did this feel like a natural progression when you go from the, you know, you're talking about the squad and platoon it, level to the division level? Yeah, it, it actually, it's it seemed like a natural progression, both uh, empirically and conceptually. Empirically, it ended up feeling very natural. Uh, with the analysis of the platoon and platoon tactics, um, what I was looking at is, of course, the smallest tactical unit that has existed. The platoon was invented, essentially, the modern platoon was invented in the First World War, 1916 being the key historical date uh, for its its institutionalisation. Um, and the division is the largest tactical unit. I mean, whether division is still a tactical unit is an open question. It sort of sometimes moves up to operational level. But what I conveniently did was move from the very smallest, the group of uh, the, the platoon of 30 to 50 soldiers up to the division of 15,000 to 20,000 troops. And so empirically, there seemed to be a nice interconnection between uh, the two levels. Now, interestingly, also conceptually, um, there also emerged a close connection. And, and one fears at one's po- one point, especially um, uh, as an academic, that one repeats oneself over and over again and writes the same book time and time again. But what I did find was striking in terms of the argument that I eventually developed in terms of the division is that there was a thematic parallel with the uh, discussion of platoon tactics. My central argument platoon tactics is that um, uh, the platoon in the 21st century has become a highly professionalized group, a highly professionalized team in contrast to to um, the mass citizen soldiery of the 20th century. And notwithstanding various myths around the greatest generation, uh, what you saw in the old uh, infantry platoon of the first, second world war career, etc., was normally a, a heroic individuals with quite a passive mass. What I'd say is that what I found and what I saw in the division was a similar move from heroic individuals, heroic generals dominating and monopolizing the division in a charismatic manner to the emergence of these highly professionalized teams. So thematically, historically and conceptually, what emerged in the course of the work was quite, for me, quite a striking parallel. And of course, hopefully without engineering it, without being artificial about it, um, the two studies actually became mutually self-reinforcing. So when I, I want to kind of, you know, normally when I, if I record a podcast with 
with uh, an author, I'm, I'm very careful not to give away too much of the conclusion. So, there, yeah. you know, I try to leave some of it. But I can honestly say that in reading this book, it would be very difficult in, in if we're only recording for a half hour, 45 minutes to even really get into it because there's just a lot of interesting material um, yep. and, and, and really insightful, I think, conclusions that you reach. So I'm not too worried about that with you. So I do want to kind of ask you to kind of expand upon that idea that you just talked about um, with this transition from the sort of 20th century to 21st century. You use a phrase called collective command. What does that yep. mean? Well, collective command for me is the distribution um, uh, and sharing of um, decision-making authority. Um, now, it's a phrase that uh, I uh, that took some time to develop, and and I had various pre- preceding phrases which were less satisfactory. So initially, the research was conducted under a concept called post-heroic uh, command, and. Interestingly, in talking to uh, senior generals, such as uh, General Mattis and, and, and General Petraeus and also uh, General Carter here in the UK, uh, they, they, they really reacted quite interestingly to that phrase because it seemed to do two things. One is to strip them as responsibility as commanders mm. and secondly, undermine um, the, the ethical integrity of the commander that somehow the commander was subject was now just a member of committee uh, the commander wasn't responsible for operations and so collective command emerged as a way of of avoiding the sort of polemical implications of the idea of post-heroic commander what did i mean by uh, collective command well let let me just emphasize really strongly um one really noticeable thing about the contemporary era is collective command does not mean command by committee the commander as a decision maker, as a mission definer, is more important than ever, I would argue, because of the um, hybridity of conflict, uh, the expanding uh, range of control and command which a general has. Um, but so the commander is, is, is a key element of the command collective. However, in order to fill the mission, what I think I tried to trace, what I think I proved, I hope I proved, uh, was that no single commander could monopolize decision making in terms of the management of the operation. The management of the operation had to be devolved outwards to a series of deputies, subordinates, staff officers who were empowered to have the authority, not the responsibility, the authority to make management decisions about particular kinds of specialist tasks which were part of the mission. And that, for me, um, defined uh, the concept of the command collective. I mean, it must be said there is a second reference for this. Um, there's a famous study in the sociology of science by David Bloor, um, which all, w- w- in which he uh, describes different systems of decision making. And this itself uh, is born out of his own interest in the philosophy of Ludwig Wick- Wittgenstein. And in his work on Wittgenstein, he describes two systems of rule following, individual rule following, individualist rule following and collective rule following. We don't have to worry about the philosophy of that, but that kind of very strong sociological binary I found useful in thinking about this project. And that is where the concept of collective command came from. Um, it was out of this this attempt to depolemicize the work that I was trying to do, the concepts, but also to, 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 to quite lightly tie it in with, with the sociological literature. 
So I want to ask you a question. It's, it's sort of a chicken and egg question. Um, but you mentioned, you know, the sort of hybrid nature of, of warfare and, and um, I think sort of um, touched on the, the, this notion that the battle space is becoming more complex, um, perhaps requiring different uh, modes of command, um, different characteristics of command. At the same time, with increasing access to things like data, um, we tend to, you know, there's a there's a there's a, a book written by the G2, the intelligence officer for Patton during World War II. He wrote his memoirs. It's a short volume, and he kind of talks about some of the tasks that he was given as Patton's intelligence officer, and that he basically did a lot of them himself. Um, it was pretty simple stuff, like give me, you know, give me the lay of the land in Sicily, where the enemy get, and where the enemy, you know, formations located, uh, things like that. When I think back to in you know 2008 2009 when I was in Baghdad and we had multinational division Baghdad the division headquarters there were 1500 people in that division headquarters that staff um, is this a function of the fact that you know the battle space is becoming more complex or uh, is it a function of a different approach sort of that we as a, as a as a force and when I say that I mean you know the US but also the UK and 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 sort of our allies is it a function of a different way that we go to war that requires a different bit of leadership or are those two things sort of linked and one reinforces the other? Yeah, re really, really interesting. Um, I mean, it's, it, 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 it's, it's a very, the way you put that is, is, is very pertinent. Um, let me, let me start by saying this. Um, one of the things that was interesting as I started to do the research and in the course of the research and in the course of my reading is that there was a, there's a significant strand of literature which argues that the kinds of complication of the headquarters, the kinds of proliferation of staff officers, the swelling of the headquarters and the, the move towards the system, which I would call a sort of professionalized collective uh, command system. Um, this is the, there's a strong strand of literature which really disparages this whole process and in a way um, wants to return to the kind of simplicity of Patton or Montgomery's headquarters um, in the Second World War and sees them as the absolute uh, ideal. And, and the argument of this literature is, oh, this expansion of the headquarters, uh, the proliferation, the explosion of the G2 function, for instance, which you see, has got nothing to do with decision making. It's got nothing to do with operational effectiveness, still less combat effectiveness. It's all about um, career uh, structures. It's all about the professionalization of the officer career, officer career uh, providing um, uh, uh, extra jobs for staff officers. It's all about uh, commanders being terrified of making uh, a decision. And, and I, I, I think in terms of, uh, of some of the legal context, this is a this is this is a problem. I don't disparage that kind of sceptical argument about the transformation of command. I think it's I think at certain points there are, there is a little bit of this going on. But my, my point overwhelmingly would be um, that the headquarters are enlarged because decision making has proliferated. Why is decision making proliferated? Because operations have stretched in about three different ways. Um, uh, for any formation level, um, the span of com command and control has increased. It's increased in terms of spatially, so a division is is involved in the administration of of thousands of square kilometres as a as a normal routine. Remember, in the First World War, a for a, a divisional front was no more than three thousand metres. Um, oh. Temporarily, the division uh, has expanded from essentially a mission every 24 hours in normal in, on a normal military operation to essentially running a campaign 
there's the, the integration of various types of air, air power. And then, of course, and this speaks to the question of hybridity, any military operation, even a high intensity one now, um, has has uh, informational, psychological um, and also political engagement elements, outreach elements and key leader elements, which simply were irrelevant to commanders uh, like Patton um, and, and Montgomery. Indeed, interestingly, were irrelevant to even counterinsurgent commanders like Massu in Algiers or Ewell in the Delta in 68-69. They just weren't they just weren't relevant to them. So. What it suggests is that notwithstanding the scepticism about this shift, this bloating of the headquarters and decision making process, um, I think there's a real material organizational operational context which which explains this. And of course, all of this is overarched by the legal context and the absolute requirement of Western military commanders to be precise and proportionate in their use of military power. And so um, we need more accurate decision-making at every point, accuracy comes with a cost. And I would say that cost is is this extraordinary expansion of um, staff officers and also supporters, deputies, partners, uh, uh, subordinates who help the the, the commander make and, and execute decisions. You know, the, the, I guess so the, as you said, the comparison in this book is 20th or 20th century command to versus 21st century command as this century goes on as as things evolve as the the conditions in the battle space involves uh the types of conflicts that military forces are engaged in evolves do you expect this trend to continue is it going to become even more collective or is there something that could happen that could essentially reverse this back to you know the sort of individual heroic uh, uh, model yeah. of command that you that you discussed <laughs> Yeah, this is this is a fascinating question. And, and in a way for the military, it's the $64,000 question, because uh, they're obviously always preparing and thinking of the future. Um, one issue here is uh, obvious issue and pertinent issue is what is artil artificial intelligence going to do to command? And one story here is artificial intelligence will resolve all the problems of command in the next two three decades and that we will the, the militaries uh, will be able, and headquarters will be able to be tiny in size uh, because all of the critical information will be distilled and analyzed by artificial intelligence essentially presenting a uh, commander with options uh, and and even in a sense of making small de decisions for uh, for commanders and so whole rafts of staff officers in the intelligence branch the logistics branch and even in the g3 the operations branch will disappear um i gotta say i'm deeply skeptical about this viewpoint um if we look at the example of digital communications this was exactly the prediction that was made under the revolution of military affairs in the 1990s we would introduce digital communications echelons of headquarters would disappear because a commander could sit in their vehicle with a laptop with a blue force tracker on it with total communications to all their subordinates and with total situational awareness exactly the opposite happened headquarters grew decisions became more complicated and why because once we got an advanced form of digital communications, it wasn't that we kept doing the same things. We exploited the, 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 the capabilities of digital communications to do more and more complicated operations at greater range with greater joint assets and joint fires. And so decision making became ever more complicated because what we were trying to do was ever more complicated. My prediction for artificial intelligence is exactly the same. 
it will, I think, change some structures of headquarters and some structures of command. I think it will have that effect, especially in, in sort of things that are reducible to algorithms, battle space management, logistics. But what I predict is that as it does that, it will, it will encourage commanders and militaries to actually put together more and more complex uh, operations, more and more complex organizational configurations, and that actually decision-making will once again become more and more complicated. So my own take on artificial intelligence is that, if anything, it will actually accentuate the collective uh, emergence of a collective command system that we've seen. Now, there is one caveat to that, which is this. All of the tests so far, so if we look at the Warfighter series in America, which is pretty much the best test we've got of what command, especially at the divisional level, but other levels uh, will look like and how it will succeed. Um, and the kind of collective command systems that you see, or I would argue see in divisions like 82nd Airborne or in 3 UK uh, Division, um, have been proved on that exercise. Now, we don't know what actually a future war is going to look like, but it is possible that we have created uh, a system which actually is militarily ineffective, uh, ineffective against peer, peer group, um, peer enemies. Um, you know, that in a certain sense, we've we've developed a kind of form of technology and we can think of historical example, Philip II's galleons versus the, sh the smaller ships of uh, of the Netherlands mm. and uh, and of uh, of Elizabethan England. Um, uh, but but, you know, that is a possibility. But all of the evidence at this point doesn't point that way. And indeed, I would suggest that if you look at Russia, uh, how they're commanding and even the Chinese, two authoritarian states, complicated operations require complex systems of command. And so I think that we're stuck with collective command, whether we like it or not. And that I see, uh, if anything, an accentuation of this professionalized system of distribution um, over the next uh, 10, 20 years. To what extent has this transition um, that you identify been deliberate and not necessarily i don't necessarily mean you know there's a group of planners sitting in the in a basement in um you know in the mod or in dod here and saying hey this is the new sort of model of command that we need but a function of deliberate decisions and how much of it was something that just sort of happened organically and the, the sort of follow-up question to that is if it's likely to further evolve you know would it behoove military forces to sort of um, be thinking about that and make it more deliberate if it wasn't previously. In interesting. I mean, there's it, 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 there's no question that the, the development of of this the system of command um, and and system is the wrong is the wrong word because system strikes uh, has an implication that this was an artificially but intentionally created practice and I, I don't see it as such. I see it as an emerging. Um, organizational structure and an, and an emerging practice which wasn't consciously conceived essentially collective command i would argue emerged gradually in response to changing organizational operational circumstances and the fact is that um i think that it's emerged organically in an unacknowledged way uh, so that in the course of the research, one of the interesting things was when I put the model towards certain commanders and, and, and James Mattis and David Petraeus would be two examples, there was some scepticism on their, their behalf. In other words, I, there is no 
what a sociologist looking in from the outside sees is something that's become quite different from the 20th century and assumed a distinctive form. But the military themselves often have no, and this is totally understandable, it would be true of any social group, the military themselves, because they're living this system, don't necessarily have a particularly developed historical or sociological understanding of the distinctiveness of what they're of what they're doing. So I don't think it's it's a sort of pre-planned system in any in any way. Um, uh, I, I think it's developed organically, and, and therefore I think um, that in the future that the, the the development will follow that pattern. It w- it won't be a pre-planned institution, indeed. Any such attempt, I would actually be concerned about. I think what what is critical in effective adaptations is to is to look pragmatically at what works. And so I wouldn't sort of say, oh, you know, if one is not running a collective concern system as I've described in this book, then then one's doing the wrong the wrong thing. But what is required is a system where the proliferation of decision making is materially met by a formation level headquarters and a formation level uh, command. Let me give you an example of that. There's work in the UK in a defence studies laboratory here where they talk about um, agile command. And and I totally agree that agile command is required. Yes. But what does that actually mean? Agile command means that someone has to make the decisions somewhere uh, and at some time. And what's required for a military organisation to actually work out Who's going to make the decision when and where are they going to get the information to make that decision? And so if you if you can't actually identify who your decision makers are and, and create a structure around them that allows them to make that decision, then then you've got nothing. And therefore, what it says sort of artificially thinking in in terms of instituting a decision making system, I would say is less effective than actually constantly practicing decision making and identifying how how best to organize a headquarter and organize the practice of decision making for me that is that is the optimal way of of ensuring military capability into the future given the um you know the transition in 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 the u.s military certainly um switching the center of gravity from the division to the brigade combat team um as sort of an independent you know, actor on the battlefield, um, based on the, you know, the time that you spent looking at command at the division level, do you see the a reemergence of the division as the sort of single self-sustaining sort of chess, chess piece on the, on the battlefield at some point? Um, yes, with qualification. The fact is that coming out of Iraq and Afghanistan, led by the U.S., Western forces, by the division as the uh, prime, not only, but the prime formation level command on the future uh, battlefield. So the core has moved up to a higher level, really running operations at a very high level. And the division has become uh, the formation, the preferred formation level, uh, which unites all the various levers to deliver actually combat power but to give a combat power within a joint interagency multinational context. Um, now, I'm certainly not saying, oh, the division is optimal for every future operation, but the fact is that is where Western forces have gone. Um, 
and at a certain level, the decision makes some makes some sense. Now, the question I think that there's there's two questions that come from that. First of all, um, the American uh, the American Army and in fact the American the U.S. Marine Corps have divisions that can deploy and sustain themselves. They are actually equipped, uh, manned, trained, resourced to deliver actual divisional operations. The one danger in the European context is that while the, US, the UK and France in particular, followed latterly by the, by the Germans, have thought about reinvesting um, in the division, and they have recreated divisional headquarters. They've created divisional headquarters which are effective in themselves. The problem, especially with the UK, but also a bit with the French and certainly with the German forces, um, is they the division is something of a you know an empty house that there is a divisional headquarters that sometimes is very effective but the actual brigades that would deliver the military element of the combat power are often seriously under resourced and so one of the dangers of course is investing in uh, investing importance in the division for european medium-sized european powers is that actually they're incapable of actually delivering uh, the divisional, the division, the divisional power that they claim uh, in, in the sort of in the headlines, and that strikes me as a potential, uh, a potential risk and a potential, uh, a potential vulnerability. Well, we're probably getting close to time to wrap up, but I want to ask one final question. Um, based on all of the research that you did, all of the interviews that you did, um, if you had to kind of build from scratch a, a, a prototype of the ideal division level military commander for the 21st century what are the what are the chief characteristics that you would you would say are are, are really vital to success a current operations room absolutely imperative is to have an outstanding and professional current operations room uh that one can yes all of the planning and the planning cells and the future operations cells these have become critical enablers but Without a really professional, really well-oiled current operations room, uh, a divisional commander in the 21st century is totally dead in the water. Um, one needs a, a staff in that current operations room that is capable of understanding continually and monitoring continually the situation and capable of reacting very quickly to changes in the operation environment, which are absolutely in inevitable. As uh, as military personnel always say, the enemy always has a vote. There will always be crises. There will always be uh, unexpected events emerging. And any effective divisional commander is absolutely dependent upon the staff in the current operations room, not only to administer, to monitor, to um, survey and supervise operations, but to actually queue them up for sensible decisions in the near time in response to the unexpected and the crisis. So if I was to build a divisional headquarters, if I was to build a um, even a brigade, whatever level headquarters, to me, the effort must go into the current operations centre because without that, a divisional commander today has nothing. Dr. Anthony King, thank you so much for joining us. The book is... is um is really really enjoyable. I mean, it is it is clear that it's well researched and and you know a lot of a lot of rigorous effort went into it. But it's also for anybody who's kind of interested in in, in this uh, members of the profession of arms um, that sort of are interested in 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 
and command uh, and understanding it in the context of, of the 21st century is it's it's phenomenal and so I'd highly recommend it so thank you very much for joining us oh thank you it's an absolute pleasure and thanks thanks very much for reading it Hey, thanks again for listening to the MWI podcast. One last thing, if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, find us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. It is the absolute best way to stay up to date on all of the new articles, podcast episodes, and research we're publishing every day. Thanks again. Thanks again.